This is a very special night. I mean, every night at LSE Reading Series is a special night. But tonight, we have partnered with Catapult. And Catapult is a publisher, and they teach writing classes, and they have an online magazine, and pretty much just run everything that's important in the literary world. So, <laughs> hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series. LIC Reading Series is a monthly event that takes place at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In our podcasts, we present to you the readings and panel discussions from our events. In this episode, you're going to hear the readings from our February 27, 2018 event, where we featured three authors who teach writing courses for Catapult. This event featured Hermione Hobie, Kanishk Thoreau, and Sharice Wallace. Let's jump on into our event where we're introducing our first reader, Hermione Hobie. We're going to get rolling with our first reader, and I have to tell you, um, one thing that we do at LIC Reading Series that's extra special because we're super proud that we're in Queens, the most diverse county in the entire country. Yes. World? In the world. Are there counties in the world? Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, so what we do is I, um, I make all of our readers, before they read from their work, share a little something about Queens, maybe a personal anecdote about Queens, some, share something about Queens before they read. So you're going to be in for some Queens treats tonight as well. Um, but we're going to start with Hermione Hobie. Hermione grew up in South London and graduated from the University of Cambridge in 2007 with a double first in English literature. She worked as an editor and writer on the Observer's New Review section before moving to New York in 2010. She writes about culture, especially books for The Guardian, The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Times Literary Supplement, and others. She's profiled hundreds of writers and other cultural figures, among them Toni Morrison, Meryl Streep, Naomi Campbell, Debbie Harry, and Laurie Anderson. That's pretty cool. <laughs> you just, can you just tell us about that stuff? No, 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 no. I'm kidding. Um, her debut novel, which is amazing, is called Neon and Daylight. It's published by Catapult. It's here. Um, and I will say, LA Review of Books says this. Hobie's descriptive language is spectacular. It's colloquial and verbose, clear and bizarre. The force of her sentences is seismic, and they exude a massive confidence. Hobie's control is never in doubt, and it makes the book irresistible. Let's give it. Yeah, shit. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> it's all true, guys. Let's give it up for Hermione. That's a better. It's a better. I might sit. Yeah. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I. Um, I haven't read reviews, so that was new to me. Thanks, whoever that was. That's amazing. Wow. Maybe I should read them. Um, so happy to be here. Um, hi. Um, I have a Queen's thing. It's not really an anecdote, but um, I'm a mentor with this great organization called Girls Right Now. I don't know if anyone... Knows. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for two years, like every week, I've um, met my wonderful... Teen, uh, my mentee and my men, yeah, menteen. No, um, thanks. <laughs> no, um, in a cafe in Queens in Sweetleaf. Um, you guys, know? yeah, 
yeah, just just down the road. Uh, I mean, we do have outings as well, but you know that's like our spot. So I have very warm feelings about Queens, and she's from Queens, so that's my Queens thing. Um, and I guess now I'll read a bit. Um, I don't think you need to know too much. Um, I'll just tell you that um, Bill and Kate, who features briefly, have had a bad date like two weeks ago. I think that's all you need to know. Bill sat with an ankle crossed over a knee, gazing into the audience. The two Xanax he'd swallowed ten minutes ago had dimmed the world into an inoffensive haze so that when, for example, he observed that the place was packed, the observation caused him neither surprise nor pleasure, only the knowledge that some combination of the two was probably the correct response. His conversational partner, a critic in her early 40s, author of two respectable pop books on motherhood, was tripling her chin to squint down at the little black mic affixed to her shirt. He realized he didn't care either way if his own mic worked, didn't mind whether he was heard, let it be someone else's problem. He had nothing more to say, anyway. Today was the book's anniversary. Anniversary, as though it were a marriage or a war. They were reissuing it, a fancy copy, with four mini-essays of introduction from people his editor had referred to without shame as bold-faced names. He'd refused a tour, citing fear of flying, which was true, and no one had fought him on it. He, in turn, fought no one on the bold-faced names. It was money. It was attention. It was a dubious efflorescence of online articles larded with the term millennials. As that word left a greasy trail through his skull, he saw her. The name was absent for a moment, just the arrest of her sharp pale face and its white blonde hair. Staring, straight out, very still, erect and attentive, while the people either side of and behind her were bustling and gossiping, fanning themselves, swigging from water bottles, leaning across one another. There seemed to be eye contact, a click of it, but at this distance you couldn't really be sure. He waited a beat, then reached for his phone, and sent Kate from Gallery two words, save me. It was a joke, as he wrote it, just casual flippancy, but then, as his finger sanctioned, send, it went with some kernel of no joke. He watched it land, watched her dip her head to read it and glance up and go pink. A little conspiracy from up here to over there. She was texting something. He waited. From what? Oh, take your pick. Alcoholism, he thought. Paternal failure dissolution, indolence and oblivion and irrelevance. Better, yes, to stick to the here and now, the manageable short term. With the uncanny quiet that sometimes comes over a crowd, conversation all around the room fell away. People looked amused and surprised at themselves. He watched Kate stash her phone. The critic, startled, began making movements of mannered readiness as though trying to catch the eye of some stage manager in the back. He wondered what her first question might be. He did not wonder very hard. Well, said the critic. She glanced down at her notebook and adjusted her seat and gave him a quick professional smile. 
His mind was a synthetic sky, blue, blank, cloudless. So, William, here we are in this historic venue celebrating the reissue of a book that's also in its own way historic. Oh, she was nervous. He could sense that some current in the crowd had found its way into her speech. And so I suppose the first thing I want to ask you is just what it's like to revisit this book and how it is to look back on what it was then and what it is now in our culture in this city. He inhaled in a small way, opened his mouth, and began. This answer and the next came on autopilot, with a dissociation not just from voice but from body too, as if he were floating somewhere above or beside himself an immaterial wisp, overhearing this fleshy lump talking, the familiar cadences of urbane self-deprecation, the well-hewn remarks, while half wondering who the hell they were, this lump, this voice, saying the same things they'd said for decades. How long had he been talking? Were they all still here, those listening bodies who'd come to hear this? He granted himself a drift of a look, and saw faces, rows and rows of them, unmoving and watching. There was something very unnatural, really, something plain hideous and frightening about so many human eyes trained on one spot, and the spot was him. Well, said the critic, in brightening conclusion, and oh God, had he made it? Was this the end? He'd no idea if it had been five minutes or fifty now, I think we're just going to open it up to some audience questions. A hand, quickest off the drawer, shot up in front of Kate and obscured part of her face. As people wheeled to look at the person about to ask the question, Bill saw the scarlet flash down one side of her bare neck, a quite gorgeous spill of it. Oh, Kate, to be stared at when you hadn't raised your hand, what a poignant unfairness. Yeah, hi, the young man said. <laughs> Taking the mic that was hurried to him, standing up, slinging his weight into one hip in a way that conveyed both his absolute assurance and the fact that what he was about to say would take some time. <laughs> so this is less of a question and more of an observation, he began. Bill shut his eyes for one moment and experienced the feeling of falling in slow motion, seated, arms and legs akimbo, into a well of oblivion. He opened his eyes, but every time the young man said, Hegelian, he plunged a fathom deeper. <laughs> as the grad student kept talking, as the minutes passed, entire fully formed interminable minutes, as the crowd shifted awkwardly with huffs and sighs, and the critic, head erect, kept opening and closing her mouth in a weak effort to interrupt, Bill began to feel something like joy. And so ultimately, yeah, I was seeking your thoughts on that and whether in the dialectical sense at least, you'd agree that this is in fact the key antinomy of what I think we can unequivocally call the contemporary discourse with regard to this. <laughs> and then, bald miracle, he stopped. The room was a single, gallid entity. Bill didn't move. He remained staring at the student. The critic bit her lower lip and looked at Bill, terrified, while a collective breath was held, strained, 
and readied to split. He savoured it for the smallest moment more. I'm sorry, he said evenly. I didn't catch that. Could you repeat the question? (laughs) One beat, alarm in the boy's eyes, and then an absolute eruption from the audience, a roar of it, like he'd cracked them open, snapped down the middle, one milligram, a tiny sky-blue pill, the whole crowd laughing, a flood of relief, and then laughing more at the sound of themselves laughing. Bill twisted the top of a water bottle and took a sip. Sometimes, when you truly and fully didn't give a fuck, when you were psychologically and pharmaceutically incapable of giving a fuck, you could find a pure sort of exaltation in the not caring. You could let yourself be carried off by it to a place approaching sublimity. The grad student's legs seemed to buckle beneath him for a moment, as if the command to sit were coming from his body rather than from the brain of which he was so proud. Who dared follow that, Bill thought, but they did, of course, because now the atmosphere was irreverent, lawless. He had them. The questions were loose and funny. One young woman, shiny and drunk and sloppy in a sweet way, took the mic and asked if it was true that he had once joined Debbie Harry on stage to sing one way or another. Sort of, yes, but he didn't say that. He just laughed. Everyone else laughed too. Sing it for us, the girl pleaded. You sing it, he said, and she did. My God, a few lines of it. And when she did a victory twirl by way of a finale and collapsed back into her seat, hiding her face in her hysterical friend's shoulder, everyone whooped and cheered, and a hero had been made, a karaoke queen of the hour. Bill plucked a carnation from the crappy vase on the table and threw it to the girl. Thanks. One more time for Hermione. I'm going to introduce our second reader, Kanishk Thurur. Make sure I'm starting at the top. Yes, I am. All right. Kanishk Thurur is a writer and broadcaster. He's the author of Swimmer Among the Stars, which is right here. Beautiful. But FSG just came out in paperback around now. Ish. Um, we have some paperback copies for you. Be one of the first to get it in paperback. It's a collection of short stories that won the Tata First Book Award for Fiction in India. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Guardian, The Nation, New Yorker, Paris Review, Los Angeles Review of Books, Virginia Quarterly Review, and elsewhere, and has been nominated for a National Magazine Award. He's also the presenter and writer of the BBC radio series Museum of Lost Objects on Public Memory and Cultural Heritage. And of Swimmer Among the Stars, NPR says it's a sparkling, magical, heartbreaking meditation on the way tradition clashes with technology and the way our reality is both defined and restricted by the language we use to represent it. Let's give it up for Kanish. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. This is such a nice room. I, I wasn't, you know... I live, I, I grew up in Manhattan and rarely came to Queens, but I might have come more often if I knew there's a fireplace waiting for me all the time. Um, I thought I was going to, uh, I thought my Queens anecdote would be a little bit cheekily about the time I was 17 and had what I thought was a very momentous kiss at the sprawling Athens Cafe in Astoria <laughs> over what what was more memorable about that was the baklava a la mode that that, that <laughs> 
that facilitate yeah baklava alamo that facilitated the kiss but cheekily uh i um uh i wanted to make my queen's anecdote related to what i was going to read which is uh the, the one of the stories in my collection which i will read from is about uh the issue of language extinction in the world which often those of us who dwell and think and inhabit english we're not terribly aware of the ways in which the language we live in um is sort of rides roughshod over the world um but what's fascinating about queens and what actually would turn me on to to the subject is that here in this borough um and to some extent in my island and surrounding suburbs um there survive languages um in diaspora that no longer exist in the places they came from so language uh, language that was once spoken in the hill tracks of the, the Chittagong hill tracks in Bangladesh is spoken in Queens where it's basically extinct in Bangladesh likewise in Kenya likewise from Indonesia so here we have and there's there are great NGOs actually that go around the borough um this is really beautiful stuff actually just tracking down people and recording old narratives that are still spoken and being told here in Queens where they're not spoken elsewhere in the world and i think that makes that's really special and defining and a real kind of cosmopolitanism that we can be proud of as new yorkers um i am going to read from this first story which is uh the title story of the book and which is about language extinction so let me and it it basically just it's it's structured around the encounter between um a woman who is thought to be the last speaker of her language and a team of, of anthropologists as a rule the last speaker of a language no longer uses it ethnographers show up at the door with di- with digital recorders ready to archive every declension each instance of the genitive the idiosyncratic function of verbal suffixes but this display hardly counts as normal speech it simply confirms reality to the last speaker that the old world of her mind is cut adrift from humans and can only be pulped into a computer she finds it strange to listen to the sounds of her mouth Inevitably, she mingles a more common language with her own. That common language, after all, is the speech that now keeps her company, that leads her through the market, that sits with her in the evenings by the television, that gives her the terminal diagnosis at the clinic, that pours through her letterbox, that comes in a crisp nurse's outfit to wash her feet. Her own language does nothing of the sort. It is nowhere to be found. She pauses, silent now, staring incredulously at the microphone. How am I the last speaker of my language? How can I be its keeper? My language left me. She apologizes to the ethnographers. You must understand, she says, that though my memory is preserved better than a lemon, it is still difficult to remember which words are my own and which words are not. Please speak as it comes naturally to you, the ethnographers say. Thank you, I'll try. In any case, we can help you remember. The last speaker looks up puzzled. But if you know already then why do you want to hear it from me? It means something more if it comes from you. Do you speak my language then? Do you understand me when I say this, when I say that, and even now when I'm singing this song that my father sang every day as he disappeared down the valley? She sings and her alien words crackle about the room. No, we do not understand, the ethnographers say, or if we do it is only distantly. Oh that's a shame it would it would be nice to sing that song for someone please madam sing it for the microphone she grins so the microphone understands does it yes it understands if only you could get microphones to talk she laughs and then feels a little sorry for herself 
She does not mean to sound sardonic. No one could accuse her of being indifferent to her plight. Some years before, it had occurred to her that she was no longer in the habit of hearing her own tongue. Every, everybody in the town seemed to be speaking the common language. She did, not know, she did not mind using their language, since she had dwelled in it for a long time, almost as long as she could remember, and had kept it clean and given it a good airing, rearranged the furniture so it suited her just right. It was the language of her husband and her children, and she had made it hers. But always in the darker corners, she placed mementos of her own, a proverb, a snatch of rhyme, some light daily expression, the glimpse of which would startle her family. With nobody to speak her language to, she began talking with objects, the pots and pans, a creaking door, the sharp corner of a table. She never spoke it with animals, because, and here a foreign kind of pride sparkled, sparked within her, it was never a language to waste on goats. Once, on a rare visit, her son came upon her in the living room, speaking with a teacup. He told her she was going mad. No, she sighed, you don't understand, this is what a conversation sounds like. Would you like a cup of tea? The last speaker asked the ethnographers. They would. Let's have some tea and then I'll sing for you. She rises from her seat and waits as they shift their equipment, the light stand and camera, the microphones, the attendant knots of wires. Brushing away their offers to assist her, she lights the stove with a match and stares out through the kitchen window. Poplars nod in the breeze over the mustard field. Someone's boy is loitering at the front gate, his hands in the pockets of his jeans. At each half-step, his sneakers light up red. She thinks he must be here to look at the visitors, but she's wrong. He follows her movements with open curiosity, as if there was something surprising about the way a kettle boils. She smiles. That's the matter with strange guests. They turn you into a stranger as well. When she sings, her eyes close and her chin with its gentle down of hair thrusts forward into the lamplight. The ethnographers cannot help but admire her strong set of teeth, a rare sight in so much of their work. They're used to thinking that there's half a relationship between dental health and endangered languages. Languages, like people, become toothless. In her case, of course, a full mouth of teeth won't make any difference. She is the last, the very last. After her, the language has only a ghostly future. Few even remember the time when its clambering rhythms united the valley and the uplands. Clinically speaking, it's already dead. A language cannot be alive if it exists alone in the mind of an old woman, no matter how fine her teeth. The song is about a wedding. At the end of the festivities, the bride leads the groom out from the town, through the fields and up the slope of a mountain. Where will it happen? the groom asks. The bride kisses him and beckons him to follow. He does. She allows him another kiss after a hundred steps, and another after another hundred, and so on until they can walk no farther and are forced to start climbing. Perturbed, the groom grabs her wrist. Why not here? She shakes her head and slips out of his grasp, removing a scarf and draping it over his shoulder. She hoists herself up the face of the mountain. The groom can see the stars shining through her hair. As they climb, she leaves bits of clothing and jewelry for him to gather. Bangles, her belt, a necklace, a vest, socks. When he reaches the top, he finds her naked and motionless. Only when he touches her does he realize that she has turned to stone. The last speaker stops. She apologizes again. Our songs are sad songs. Nobody ever gets to have sex. <laughs> The ethnographers smile vaguely. Even the most capable among them can understand at most a handful of her words, an occasional phrase. 
The full meaning of the song awaits its patient digestion in a computer lab. For now, their responsibility is only to the collection of raw material and the husbanding of its source, a happy task. They are growing fond of the last speaker, softened by her unabashed, tuneless singing. Privately, they all feel the stirrings of great affection, the sort that civilians might call sympathy, but they know to be truer still, the love of the student for the studied. Can I sing it again, the last speaker asks. I would like to change the ending. By all means, they say, whenever you're ready. Technographers, after all, are modern enough to know that nothing can be totally genuine. Traditions are invented to be reinvented. If the last speaker wants to sex up a folk song, so be it. <laughs> In any case, it's the form of the words that matters, the syntax and structure of her speech. Everything else is just pleasant air. This song departs entirely from the previous version, but the ethnographers cannot sense the fullness of the difference, nor can they tell that she's improvising fresh phrases. The bride eludes the groom and disappears from the wedding festivities. She journeys to the mountain. At its summit, she finds a rocket. Here, the last speaker pauses to construct a suitable compound for the noun rocket, which she renders with verbal suffixes as fiery flight in void into void. The bride enters and speeds up to the heavens. Everything recedes beneath her. The bride has never wanted to be a bride, but rather an astronaut, swimmer among the stars. And fair enough, why should brides be brides when they can be astronauts? In space, the astronaut dances between satellites, invisible lightning moths, and befriends the moon. They drink, and watch, they drink wine and watch TV, chaos of shadows and stillness. The sun grows jealous since the moon is its bride. It asks mankind to fetch the astronaut back. Why do you let her be up there? If your women become astronauts, who will be your brides? Mankind agrees, this is a worrying situation. The Prime Minister, temporary rent collector, is sent to the moon to reason with her. He sets up a table on the surface and waits for her to appear for negotiations. He waits and waits, not knowing that the moon has whisked the astronaut to its dark side. The vastness of space inspires only a deep resignation in him, but he has a mission to fulfill, so he remains seated on the surface of the moon, facing an empty chair, expecting a woman who will never come. Look what I've done, the last speaker says after finishing. I'm such an old fool, I haven't changed the ending at all. I'll stop there. And Give it up for Kanish. Okay, you guys, we're going to have our next reader, and I'm pretty excited to introduce you to Sharice Wallace. Let's give it up. All right. Sharice Wallace. Is this a, does this make a good picture, Carl, when I like put the mic between my legs to put it near my mouth? So it's like, that's good? Okay. Sharice Wallace is the author of the novel The Resurrection of Joan Ashby, right here, beautiful, uh, long listed for the 2018 Penn Robert W. Bingham Debut Fiction Prize. It was named 2017 Best Fiction and Best Fiction Debut by Kirkus Reviews, the New York Times Book Reviews Editor's Choice, an Indie Next Pick, Book List 2017 Top 10 First Novels, a Book Browse Editor's Choice, among other honors. Her second novel, The Family Tabor, Tabor, sorry, thank you. The Family Tabor will be published in July 2018. This is a busy lady. <laughs> She's another book coming out real soon. She received a BFA from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts 
and was a feature film story editor and director of film and television development. She received a JD from Loyola Law School and practiced law in both Los Angeles and New York before co-founding a film company, Ovi Entertainment. She's like a slacker. At Ovi, in addition to being legal counsel, she acquired and developed scripts, novels, and stories, produced movies, including a South by Southwest audience winner, and created an internship program to teach college students story development and adapting material for film. Don't you want to, like, take a class with her? Maybe. She has been a fiction editor for a literary journal and is a freelance fiction and nonfiction editor. Her short stories have been published in a variety of magazines and literary journals. And I want to tell you... Um, uh, in book page, a review by Amy Scribner says, it's almost impossible to believe that the resurrection of Joan Ashby is the first novel by Sharice Wallace, a lawyer and film producer. Gorgeously written and completely captivating, the book spans decades and continents, deftly capturing the tug so many women feel between motherhood and self-identity. Raise your hand if you know about that. Um, Kirkus Review says, like John Irving's The World According to Garp, this is a look at the life of a writer that will entertain many non-writers. Like Lauren Groff's Fates and Furies, it's a sharp-eyed portrait of the artist as spouse and householder. Let's give it up for Charisse. Um, especially since I don't think I've been out of my house for 10 days because I've had whatever's been going around. Right? It's terrible. I've watched a lot of TV. Tons of TV. And I have, I have recommendations if anyone needs them. Uh, all right, my Queen's anecdote. I was in my first year at NYU when a fellow student took me out, wanted to take me out on a date, and I agreed. And for some reason, the date meant going to Steinway Street to have a fortune teller tell my future. Right? He was really... Uh, no, he was not, strangely enough. This was a couple of years ago. Um, there, was, there were a lot of, there were a lot, there, she was waiting for us. So we went up to this apartment and the fortune teller, she was this interesting lady. She looked us both over before she read my palm, before she read any of the tarot cards. She looked us at us and she said to me, he's not good for you. <laughs> and I should have listened because about a year and a half later I realized she was right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, The Resurrection of Joan Ashby is a novel about personal and artistic, artistic identity about living unintended lives about family, betrayals the nature of honesty, creativity and the effects, obligations and responsibilities of genius but this novel started out as a short story. And it started out as a short story about a boy named Daniel Manning who wants to be a writer and then learns at the age of 11 that his mother actually is a famous writer. That mother-son dynamic and that the effects of that knowledge upon Daniel actually made it into the book. So the excerpt I'm going to read is unusual in that it's a first-person excerpt. Uh, and it's, an ex it's, a, it's from a series of recordings that Daniel makes when he's in his late 20s. Okay. It's rare. I've, I've done a lot of readings lately, but no, no one's been this close. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've considered how best to start, and I think it is like this. 
I, Daniel Manning, am the commoner in a family renowned for its brilliance. Mother, father, much younger brother, all masters of their particular universe. My mother's fame and glory blazes as bright as ever, though she ceased writing long ago, had, as I believed, given it all up. Manning, my father's surname, my surname, is appended to all the miraculous ocular surgeries he has invented. And then there is my brother, for whom everything has come so easy, a self-taught wonderkind. Oh, I was told I was special when I was a child, and I believed it, until I absolutely could not. Since then, I have feared my own mediocrity, wishing my own innate genius would appear. I've roiled for a long time with anger and frustration and the hot hatred of knowledge that I was not born marked for greatness like the rest of them, the small clan I am tied to for life. I did not always feel this way. For a while, it seemed words would unleash my internal powers. I was five and a half when I began writing a whole lot of little stories about a squirrel I named Henry and I demonstrated great talent for putting that poor squirrel through his paces, inventing dangerous situations for him to overcome. Each story, a whole new world I invented from scratch. The writing of those stories meant everything to me, made the earth spin right on its axis, made me feel actual and definite in a way I otherwise did not. This, I knew, would be my future. Although my father talked about the dreams he found deep inside the eyes of his patients, and my mother told me elaborate bedtime tales about rare and unusual babies. Critical to my understanding of myself was that my parents may have been storytellers, but I was the writer in my family, the only one who wrote his stories down. As I look back over those early years, I remember strangers stopping my mother on the streets of our small town. But even had I overheard what I imagine now were compliments and praise about her work, none of it would have resonated. For my mother never told me about her life before marriage. I was not privy at all to her past. I was 11 when I learned about the awesomeness of her achievements, and I was devastated, her history resting away what I had long believed belonged only to me. And soon after, when I forced myself to read one of her stories called Deep in the Valley, its mere existence shattered me completely. Perhaps if I'd come up against Joan Ashby when I was older, I would not have had such a visceral reaction, would not have immediately doubted myself, feared that what I wanted to achieve might be beyond my capabilities, beyond the gift I had then displayed. I was a competitive boy, and that I was comparing apples and oranges in an 11-year-old versus an award-winning writer at the height of her powers was meaningless to me. I raised my boyish defenses, threw overboard my own desires, abandoned Henry the Squirrel to find his own way, and thereafter protected Ash myself from anything Ashby-related. Treacheries experienced in childhood are among the most difficult to overcome or to forgive, as are dreams crushed when we are too young. Having to acknowledge your weaknesses can make the best of us fall into a very dark place. Five years ago, when I was 22, I was nine months into my tenure at a venture capital firm, intent on making myself a master of that universe. But I loathed its abbreviated acronymic language, its locker room atmosphere, that everything was measured by size. I knew early on that while I did not possess whatever, I knew early on that either I did not possess whatever was required to succeed there or I did, 
but the environment would make it impossible. The equation was already solving itself, for I was failing spectacularly. When Ashby was forced back into my life, I had just finished rambunctiously fucking the woman I was sleeping with. Christina grabbed something from her bedside table and said, read this, and thrust into my hand an old anthology, Best American Short Stories of 1984. In her few off hours, Christina was trying to expand her education beyond macroeconomics and statistics. She too was in venture capital, but she loved it and she liked me. And I liked her and her apartment, which had walls painted a happy shade of yellow, which reminded me of my childhood bedroom. What I brought to our informal relationship was an understanding of the hours we both kept, my eagerness, if not talent, in all things coitus, and my willingness afterward to read and discuss, discuss with her the story she was making her way through. Unlike Christina, I had been, I'd always been a voracious reader. My business school education well mixed with liberal arts, and I had surreptitio surreptitiously minored in American literature, always keeping the venerated Ashby at bay, which had not been easy to do. So being ordered in the dead of night by a girl with great breasts to read a story called An Outlaw Life did not frighten me. It was the author's name, Joan Ashby, that turned my skin cold, set my heart racing, returned to me the loss of my all my youthful dreams. When I shook my head, Christina said, what, Daniel? And then I shook the book as if, as if eager to comply with her request. She rolled onto her back, a naked carnal display, but I could see nothing, could only feel the old hurts, that old fear coming in waves that intensified a fear I first recognized at 11, that Ashby's work contained hidden dangers that would trip me up, plummet me down into some scary, inhospitable landscape, the ground pockmarked and sodden. When I was still a kid, the name Ashby would sometimes punch itself unbidden into my brain, and all I could imagine was quicksand, myself being sucked under. The paperback anthology in my hand turned into a hundred-pound weight, the paragraphs hurtling off the page and smacking me in the face, and I suddenly understood that time had not done its work. My childhood fragility, the striated pain of that earlier time, which I thought long bulwarked by years of reason and rationality and maturity, had not made me impervious. I instantly felt my thin skin, my hatred about not measuring up, my despair at my sheer ordinariness, everything I felt when I read that other story of hers a decade before. I realized then that the tumultuous things that happen in childhood are tsunamic experiences that weaken our fleshy armor, have leave deep cracks and crevices in their wake, and even when the scars are knitted together, even when there is a tough keloided ridge on top, it takes little effort to rip them apart, where the pus still pools a hundredth of a millimeter below. With Christina urging me to get started, I could not avoid the story, could not avoid what I had always fought against, that Joan Ashby was, is, and will always be my mother, and that the very fact of her had caused me to abandon my dreams. I focused on the first word and prayed that my courageousness would be rewarded. But when I reached the end of the story, there was no reward, just Ashby, always Ashby, blowing another hole through my impoverished heart. Reading an outlaw life that night is marked on my personal timeline with the blood-red circle. It marked another massive splintering in my life. But this time, I was all grown up. I could throw those shards skyward, determine what I wanted to do amidst all of the breakage. 
That story made me rethink everything. And I saw that an outlaw life could set me free, give me the power to make my own fate, that if I followed the tenets Ashby had laid out in that story, that she herself believed, I could simply discard entirely this useless version of myself. I rose then and dressed, and my clothes felt as if they belonged to someone else entirely, someone already dead and gone, someone who was no longer me. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and The Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.